you may know over the last few weeks, we've been working through a series as a church uh, that is, uh, been, it's called Jesus is Greater Than. And we've been looking through uh, these two different belief systems that are very prevalent in our country and in our area to see kind of their history, the beliefs, uh, and the differences uh, between them and the truths that we see in God's Word. And today, as we continue in this, we're diving into uh, another belief system. While the two that we've looked at, which were Jehovah's Witness and Mormonism, uh, they both cover uh, about 23 million people worldwide. The one that we're looking at today uh, is actually one that has 1.9 billion followers worldwide. Uh, Islam is the second largest religion worldwide following only Christianity, but that is Christianity when you combine together Catholic, Protestant, and many others that you might be surprised are on that list because they don't adhere to the same gospel message that you would see in Scripture. Uh, Islam is considered to be the world's fastest growing religion, though that is by birth rate and not conversion rate. Uh, so because of the high birth rate uh, that they have, that is why their religion is growing because the conversion rate and the people leaving uh, Islam are almost equal and have been over the last decade pretty consistently. Um, but here's the thing. We have to realize that this religion, it is massive, it is growing, and it is much different to, to us in the Western world than most of us would consider it or think of it to be. And I believe it's vital for us as a church to take a look into a religion that we have often overlooked due to its lack of presence in our area, uh, because projections show that in the next uh, 10 years, 20 years here, one in every three people on the planet will be a Muslim. One in every three and so I think we have to stop being okay with our lack of understanding when it comes to Islam and start taking a proactive approach in order to reach this group of people who need to desperately hear the truth. Now, this is where we hit our dilemma, and I know every time I preach, I bring up some problem, right? That's what I do. It's my pattern. I've noticed this. I have patterns. The kids make fun of me because I scoop when I talk like this. Whatever. It's okay. Here's my pattern. We have a problem, and that problem is this. As millennials, as, as the millennial generation has come up into church leadership, um, we, we are seeing an issue, and it's not because millennials are the worst. I'm a millennial, and I know I'm the worst sometimes, but still, it's not that. Here's the problem. Uh, recent studies have shown that 47% of millennial Christians do not believe or do not agree with, or they think it's wrong to share one's personal beliefs with somebody of a different faith in hopes of converting them. That means almost half of millennial Christians disagree with evangelism. They think that it is pushy or rude or harsh or politically insensitive. No matter what it says in scripture, that's how they feel. You can look down on my generation for this, but before you do remember that for this to be the case, there had to have been an example that led to it before. For my generation, the example we're setting is leading to uh, the projections that by 2050, 42 million Gen Z Christians will walk away from their faith. That's my generation's example that is leading to that. But there was a generation before mine that, that led an example that evangelism is the work of the pastor and not the church. And it's led to where we're at today, where now not only is evangelism not our job, it's not right. And that's totally against what Scripture says. And so we have to face this as we continue to see this rise of a false belief system. We have to make a major change to see our mission, Jesus' great commission, accomplished. And that is why we're doing this series as a church. So I encourage you to stop looking at this as kind of an educational series to strengthen your own standing, your own belief. And it's time. I want to invite you to join me. We're changing the name. This isn't a sanctuary anymore. This is a war room. It's where we are. We're going to become aware 
of what the true advances of the true enemy are, and strategically we're going to plan our movements to win souls that were bound for hell and bring them to freedom, hope, and truth in Jesus. That's our goal here. And so with that in mind, I want to pray and then we're going to dive in. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity today to study your word, to look into uh, the religion of Islam and to, to see, God, what it is that you have to say about these things, God. And I pray that you would open our eyes, you would open our hearts, you would open our minds, God, to, to the reality of what's going on around us in our world, God, with 1.9 billion people following this. Would you help us to wake up, God, to the true need and to the true calling that you've put on us as your church, as your body? We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so our pattern through this entire series has been this. We kind of look at the history uh, of, of where these religions came from. Then we take a look at what their belief system is, and then we kind of do a compare and contrast. We're going to follow that same pattern today. So we're going to start in the history of Islam. Some of you guys will know way more about Islam than I do. And if you hear something that you're like, well, I want to correct you on that, come and tell me afterwards, please. Um, I would love to hear that. If you hear things that you're like, well, that was, that was good, you don't have to tell me that. Just let that go. So, but I want to, if there's something that you're like, well, you should know this, or I think this too about it, or this is a bit, I'd love to talk to you about it. And there's going to be an opportunity for that, not during service today, but coming up here, and I'll explain it to you in just a little bit. But back in the year 570 AD, there's a man named Muhammad who was born in the city of Mecca in Saudi Arabia. He was orphaned by the time he was six years old, and he was taken in by his uncle who raised him to join in their powerful clan's trade as merchants. Their trade was trade, and they were very good at it. They ran most of the trade routes in their area. They were a very wealthy family and a powerful clan in their time. Um, Muhammad was known as a merchant for being very honest, which was unheard of in their time. Uh, and so he was well-liked. A lot of people, travelers that would come into Mecca, and they would come there because the trade was this. Mecca was a place of worship where they had about 350 different gods that they worshiped, and his clan made and sold small idol figurines. That's what they were known for. And so the people would come, buy these figurines that were required for worship, and he was very honest with his prices and would take good care of people. When he turned 40, right around that time, he began to see things and hear strange voices. And every year he would take time to retreat and meditate in a cave called Hira. This was during one time during the Arab month of Ramadan, which means intense heat. Um, he found a cave where he began to meditate until one day he claimed to have heard a voice that said, peace be with you. Now his reaction to this is not what you would normally react when someone walks in and says, peace be with you. It scared him and he ran away because he believed it was a demon that was trying to talk to him that was after him. Uh, his wife encouraged him to go back and when he did, uh, he says the angel Jabril or Gabriel in English appeared to him. Now Jabril demanded that Muhammad recite the words of Allah, which means the one true God, and embraced Muhammad tightly. I use the word embraced because that's the word that they use for it. Uh, what you'll see through the story, though, is that it's not like this warm, cuddly embrace. He's squeezing the life out of him is what is, is going on. Um, two times during this encounter, Muhammad responded with, I cannot recite. So Jabril squeezed him tighter until he could bear it no more. Uh, and demanded, recite in the name of your Lord who created. He created man from a clinging form. Recite, and your Lord is the most bountiful who taught by the pen, who taught man what he did not know. Muhammad recited this, claiming that it felt as though the words were written on his own heart. Jabril released him, and he ran down the mountain terrified. As he fled, he claims he heard a voice that, that said to him, Muhammad, you are the messenger of God. 
and I am Gabriel. He looked up and he saw an angelic being standing on the horizon. In every direction he turned, it would appear there on the horizon. Uh, he was terrified by this encounter and he became suicidal, very isolated. Uh, and it was not his decision alone to step into the role that he then took. In fact, it was the encouragement of his wife and a few others, including some that were tied to Christianity, who came alongside him and told him, hey, you need to step into this role of being the messenger of the one true God of Allah. Um, so he began to share these revelations that he was receiving. Over the next 12 years, Muhammad spoke of unity in a time of much tribal warning or warring, uh, social justice, and he spoke of the truth of one true God. Uh, in the city of Mecca, where he was from, his growing following of about 100 to 120 people, which after 12 years, that's about all it was, um, they began to cause some issues with the local trade. So his own clan was getting upset with him because they're selling many gods, and he's preaching one God and starting to get people to follow him. If there's only one God, they don't make any money. It doesn't work that way. So uh, they kicked him out. They forced him out of Mecca. They persecuted him hard until he and his followers left. And over time, uh, they left Mecca and migrated to a city known as Yathrib, later named Medina, which is known or in the name of the city of the prophet. At this point in time, Yathrib was a struggling city, struggling to recover from political turmoil. And upon hearing his message of unity, the tribal leaders of that city gave Muhammad power and control over their city so he could lead. And at this point, we see a dramatic change in Muhammad and his message. He goes from teaching peaceful unity to a focus much more on conquest driven by revenge against Mecca. They start performing raids against Mecca with small forces. Um, most of them failed, and all of a sudden they started having success. And over the next 10 years, he proved himself to be a brilliant military leader. In fact, militaries all over the world today use his tactics that he invented and brought in. Um, he raised up a united army that was able to take back the city of Mecca and shortly after defeated the Persian and Byzantine empires. These are massive empires that he was able to overthrow at this time with a small army that was just very powerful and united. The people followed him, believing that following his commands was the same as following the commands of Allah. That is what they, he had taught and revealed to them, and that is what is still taught and revealed to this day. So when his focus changed from battling the people of Mecca who had wronged him uh, to a new revelation, which was fight those who do not believe in Allah, including Jews and Christians, his followers obeyed fully. He proclaimed that Allah declared that all non-Muslims must be forced to submit to Islam, specifically those to whom had been given the book. Now, this term, the book, when you see it in the Quran, uh, refers to the Bible, our Bible. So what he's saying in this is we must force Jews and Christians to submit, specifically those groups must submit to Islam, okay? Muhammad began to fight all those who refused to submit to Islam unless they were willing to pay a high tax. So this is how he, he came in with conquest, is he would go to a place with his army, and he would offer them an opportunity. And it, they had three choices. You convert to Islam, and you pay a small tax. You don't convert, but you let us take control, and you pay a high tax, or you die. That was it. And, and so many places just went, well, sure, we'll just convert. It's no big deal. We save money. We don't have to do anything. Like, not a big deal. In, including uh, places like the Byzantine Empire. They didn't even fight them. This was, if you look back at the history of this empire, though, you'd be amazed at that, that they don't even put up a fight. They just handed over control. 
Uh, is this very interesting thing, but it's because his military forces had been known to win battles over thousands of men with just three to four hundred. And so they were very, very scary to face, and most people just handed over control. Um, to understand this, uh, the word Islam actually means the way of submission. Now, if you were to talk to a Muslim today, that idea of submission would be submission to Allah. But when you look at the history of Islam, this idea of submission sounds very different, doesn't it? It, You see this this forced submission uh, that's coming, and as we go through the rest of this, you'll see this played out even more. Shortly after gaining control uh, of some of these empires, Muhammad became ill and died. And following his death, there have been centuries of controversy over who should have led or who should lead next, what was meant by Muhammad's revelations and other dividing factors. And even with all these inner conflicts, Islam has grown exponentially to its massive size today. Like I said, 1.9 billion people. Before his death, Muhammad went from this peaceful unity to power through conquest to just flat-out evil. Uh, Muslims are taught and declare that Muhammad is the greatest moral figure the world will ever have, and therefore his actions are all good because of his status as the prophet of Allah, as his true prophet. So when he began having revelations that were interestingly convenient, nobody even batted an eye. He had withstood persecution in Mecca, so when he said we're going to go and start raiding Mecca, nobody questioned him because Allah had told him that that's what they should do. Uh, When he gained enough power, he would have no tolerance for anybody disagreeing with him. There was a man uh, uh, over 100 years old who lived near Mecca, uh, was watching this all go down, and he wrote a poem, uh, kind of almost making fun of those that were giving in to Islam so quickly, that were just doing, and it was because there's no real need to do this, because if we all just stood up against it, there'd be no big deal. We could end this quickly. So he was almost making fun of those that were giving into it, and Muhammad read his poem, got very upset, and sent somebody to murder him in his sleep that night. So they did. Then, then a woman uh, heard of this murder, and she decided to write a poem calling people to rise up against Islam because they had just murdered a man who could not have defended himself, and all he did was write a poem. So uh, Muhammad reads her poem, gets very upset. He says, who will, who will rid me of this woman? A guy that was near him stood up and left and murdered her that night and came back and asked him, am I clean according to Allah? Do I, am I going to have to pay for this? Am I going to be punished for this? And here's Muhammad's response. Two rams won't even butt heads over her. It means she didn't even matter. All you have done is what I asked you to do, and Allah says you're clean, you're good to go. So the man went home uh, feeling like he was essentially faultless. A group of Jews refused to submit and even tried to form an alliance against Islam, but when their alliance couldn't unify, Muhammad took them captive. Uh, he took six to 900 men captive. He took them to the city of Mecca. He dug a trench through uh, the streets there in the main marketplace, which is still there today. Uh, he had all of these men, six to 900 of them, kneel along it, and they beheaded them one by one and pushed their bodies in and buried them in the streets of Mecca, then taking their women and children and splitting them up as spoils among the men to be uh, enslaved or sold. Um, and suddenly when they start taking female captives, the men started having questions of, well, what are we allowed to do with them? What are, what are the rules for them? And conveniently, Muhammad receives a revelation from Allah following their questions that says, yes, your, your men can sleep with these women if they want. They're far from their wives, so they, they can. There's no big deal. It didn't stop there, but Muhammad soon after received revelations that allowed he himself, as well as his male followers, to sleep with even girls who had not yet reached puberty. 
It's clear in the Quran, it's there, and Muhammad himself married at one point a girl who was six years old. Uh, the justification that they make for that is he waited three years to sleep with her. So, um, I honest, honestly, sadly, with Muhammad being declared the perfect moral standard, many women and young girls still today suffer from these things that he has laid down, from these declarations. And we could spend all day long getting into a, a series of kind of almost bashing on this stuff and bashing on Muhammad and bashing on it. That is not my intent today. So we're going to stop uh, going in this direction because I'll just tell you there is a lot more and it is, it's ugly. And as I, as I went through this and studied it, it is just a dark thing to be in and a part of. So we're going to take a shift of focus here. We're going to go off of the history of Islam. History lesson is over. I know it's like drinking from a fire hose, and we're, we're like getting a ton of information, and we're not done yet with that. So just take a breath, and we're about to take another drink here as we go through some of the basic beliefs of Islam, and then we'll slow down just a little bit uh, as we get to kind of our compare and contrast to help us understand where we are to stand in these things. So we're going to look at some of the br a brief overview of the basic beliefs of Islam here. And at the core of Islam, we have seven foundational beliefs that every Muslim has to accept. These are here. Um, belief in God is the first one, which in Arabic, his name is Allah. Second one, belief in angels, both good and bad. The third one, belief in the revealed books of God. Now, I want to take a break here for a moment to kind of explain to you what those are because many people would hear that and say, oh, it's, it's Muslim. That means that it's the Quran, and it starts with the Quran, yes. That is the first one. That is the one that all of them still hold to uh, and adhere to. But then behind the Quran, you also have another set of books, which are the Sunnah and the Hadith. So the Quran is Allah's revelation to Muhammad, and then the Sunnah and Hadith, this is the practices of Muhammad and the sayings of Muhammad. So here's how that works. If you have a Quran and it's very difficult to understand, you would look at the practices and sayings of Muhammad to help you understand how to live out what's in the Quran. And then it takes another step back because it's difficult sometimes to understand and justify what he did. And so now we have a set of about 10 to 12 different commentaries. You pick which ones you kind of agree with and translate through that to get back to the Quran. So now we've got three steps to get back to the original uh, revelation from God, from Allah, in order for them to understand what it is that they're to do in everyday life. Uh, and then there's even steps further back than that. It gets very confusing as you keep going. But the holy book that they would say out of all of those steps is the Quran. Uh, the next one may surprise you. In fact, the next three may surprise you because they have four main ones. The next one is the Torah as given to Moses. We know that as the first five books of the Bible. It was the, uh, the Torah that the, the law of God was in that the Jews carried. Now they would say that our Torah today is badly corrupted. Uh, and we don't have the real one. Uh, the next one is the Psalms of David. We would look at the book of Psalms, and some of it would correlate, but most of it, they'd say, is badly corrupted. Um, and then the last one, this is the one that's most shocking, the gospel message given to Jesus by Allah. Uh, the gospel given to Jesus by God. Now, you kind of look at that and go, now, wait a second, what are you talking Like, how can you have this belief and also the gospel given to Jesus? Well, they would look and say uh, that it is not the gospels that we read, but the message they believe Jesus was actually given to proclaim. Uh, there are mentions to scrolls and possibly other, another book, but these are the four most widely recognized. Okay, so off of the books, now we're back to these seven foundational beliefs. The next one is belief in God's many prophets, which include Adam, Abraham, Moses, David, Jesus, and others that you'd be very familiar with. Uh, accepting that there will be a last day and final judgment. Belief in the divine measurement of human affairs and belief in life after death. 
These are the seven foundational beliefs. Uh, and, and so we start here, and every Muslim must accept these. And then they go from the foundational beliefs into the practical things, the things that they are to practice out in order to earn reward in the afterlife or salvation. So these are known as the five pillars of Islam. The first one is this, affirmation. It's consistent recitation of and belief in the creed that there is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his messenger. The next one's prayer. Praying towards Mecca, their holy city, five times a day. Then almsgiving, which is giving 2.5% of their income to the poor. The fast, fasting from dawn till dusk every day during Ramadan, which is the ninth month of the Islamic lunar calendar. And then the last one is the pilgrimage, traveling to Mecca at least once in their lifetime. If a Muslim can hold to these things, they believe they will be rewarded for this in the afterlife. I want to kind of turn our focus for a second here because you may have noticed something that I noticed as I studied through these things. There's a lot of crossover and correlations between our faith and theirs, isn't there? A lot of pieces that tie in. And what's amazing about that is this. It actually makes it easier to bring up the gospel with a Muslim than you may think. I have uh, multiple times in, in my life had opportunities to reach out and connect with Muslims. And, and what's amazing, I use a method that we're going to talk about here in just a minute that some of you are familiar with uh, that we use with our youth. And it is, uh, it's called Ask, Admire, Admit, or the AAA method. And, and so what you're doing is you're asking questions to find out what somebody believes. We find something that we can admire about what they believe without condoning a false belief. And then we admit why we have our faith in Jesus. It's a great way to bring up gospel conversations and kind of walk through the whole thing. And so I've had this opportunity to use this multiple times with Muslims. And what's amazing is in, in the occasions that I've gotten to do this, I'll ask them questions, find out that they're Muslim. And I always like to ask this question when I find out someone is Muslim. I ask them, what is the most important part of your faith? The most important part of your faith. Every single time they answer the same thing, prayer. Now, I can admire that, can't I? Some people look and say, you can't admire anything about it. But here's the thing. Aren't we as Christians called to be dedicated to prayer? Absolutely. And, and so what's amazing is I get to look at these guys and say, hey, here's what's amazing to me. I'm a Christian and I'm a pastor and I wish that if somebody asked me what's the most important part of my faith that I could honestly look them in the eyes and say it's prayer. I am amazed by how dedicated to prayer you are and it always throws them for a second and then they say this and almost every time they say the exact same thing. You know, that's what I feel about Christians too. I just wish that Christians would live out what they believe. Isn't that interesting to hear? Because now what's amazing is we've gone from, I've heard about what they believe a little bit. I've gotten to ask questions. I've gotten to admire something. And now they've brought up Christianity in a way that I can open it up and go. And it's amazing the opportunities that come up so quickly because of the correlations that we see between our faiths. It's very interesting to see that. And so maybe you're looking at it saying, well, I want to learn how to do that a little bit better, and I want to invite you to something. This Wednesday, we normally do this with our youth about six, seven times a year where we take over our youth center and turn it into kind of a coffee shop uh, and have them practice through this method so that when they go out, when they go to school, when they're at their jobs, they know how to use this. Some people think it's weird that we practice for that. I think it's weird that the average high schooler spends eight to nine hours a week practicing for basketball that they will never get to do beyond high school. So uh, let's think internally 
uh, like, and not just on the temporal things that are fun, but let's think about something that makes a difference here uh, when it comes to practicing. And I want to invite you, I cannot at this point hand out coffee due to the restrictions that we're under. So I can't do it at our youth center, but Isaac and Lacey can do it at their coffee shop here in Mitchell. And so here's what we're going to do. I'm going to be down there at the coffee shop, and I will buy you a coffee. Just come and see me. And, uh, it, and I will buy you a coffee. I'll be there all day from 8.30 in the morning to 5.30. I'll suffer through it. It'll be hard, but I'll make it. Um, and so I'm going to sit down there, and, and students are going to be coming in throughout the day, and I want you to join them. Come in. I want to walk you through how to ask, admire, admit. I'll pair you maybe with a student, and you can maybe learn some things from them that they've been practicing or going on on this, or maybe you, need, you can teach them some things on it. It's an amazing opportunity, and what's so cool about doing it in a place like that is as somebody comes in and goes, well, hey, what are you doing here? Boom, now we get to actually use it. Let's go for it. And so I'm so excited about this. Come and join us. Uh, if you want more information on that, come and see me after the service. I just wanted to invite you to join me for that on Wednesday. It's going to be awesome. It's such a fun time, and don't worry, I'll make it just as awkward as I can, okay, because that's just what I do, so it's perfect. It makes it so much more fun, okay? All right, now that side note done, we're going to jump into this look at kind of the compare and contrast, the differences between our faith and the faith uh, of Islam. So um, as we look at this, we're going to focus on some specific points because we could spend years doing this, but we're going to focus on uh, some specific areas. The first one that we'll look at is God. We're going to look at the person of God. We're going to look at the Trinity, and we're going to look at Jesus. Then we're going to look at the Bible and our views of the Bible, and then we're going to look finally at afterlife or salvation to see what it's, uh, the differences are there. So first, looking at the idea of God. Muslims and Christians both believe in one true God. But Muslims would declare that the God of the Bible revealed as Yahweh is not God. Their God is known as Allah. This is an interesting thing, uh, and it's important for us to, to realize something about this, because in Christianity over the last decade and a half, I've been hearing this from people, that they don't understand why Muslims and Christians can't get along because we both believe in the same God, and that is not true, and the Muslims would be the first to tell you that. Not the same God, because our God uh, has revealed himself in many ways, and that is not a true God to them. Uh, and we'll get into that even more when we hit the Trinity here, but I want you to understand where they see this. Their Torah and why they'd say our Torah is completely corrupted. Uh, to them, God is revealed as Allah, that is his name, and that is it. That is all he is known by. For us, we look in the Torah, Exodus chapter 6, verses 2 through 3, and we see this. And God said to Moses, I am Yahweh, the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as El Shaddai, God Almighty, but I did not reveal my name, Yahweh, to them. I love this passage because we see God revealing himself in two different names, two different ways. Um, and already it's like, okay, well, that does not work with us believing the same God if God only has one name, and yet now God is revealing himself with multiple names, and even before this, there's even more names, and after this, a lot more to follow. So now we have a major problem. That's where Muslims say no. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't fit. Your Torah is corrupted, uh, but they must have, they have more of the correct one is what they would say. Another area with God that is a major difference is the matter of the Trinity, and it continues on with this issue. Um, Muhammad strongly rejected the idea of a triune God because to him that was a polytheistic or a mini-God's view. Uh, it was not right, and Muslims to this day believe that Christians don't realize that we're worshiping not one but three gods. They believe that we have just made a mistake, uh, that we don't understand it, and that's the problem, that we're actually caught up in a polytheistic belief system, which is interesting. If you study the history of Islam a little bit deeper, you find that 
in Mecca with the 350 some gods that they had there. Four of them uh, were the top ones. One of them, the main one, had three names and the last one of his names was Allah, which is really interesting because as Muhammad starts going through this process, when he first began, he actually made allowances for them to worship Allah and his three daughters, who was the other three main gods, and then later took them out of it. But we'll get into all that stuff in a little bit here. It's just a very interesting thing uh, to see this, this attack against the idea of the Trinity. Uh, but what you'll find, and maybe you've heard it over the last couple weeks, the Trinity is one of the first things when a false belief system comes in that is tossed, that is changed or manipulated. Um, Genesis chapter 1, 26 and 27, we get this first look right at the beginning of the Torah. We get the first look into the idea of the Trinity, the idea of um, multiple persons in one God here. And we see it here. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth and all the small animals that scurry along the ground. So God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. I love this passage because it says us. Let us make them in our image and he created them. It's not like it went from, hey, we're having a discussion as a group and then creation time comes and it's one of them. It's saying us, our, he, and they're together. They're the one. And that's what I love about it is you get to see this. Now, it doesn't give the definition of three of them. And so we get to see that defined more throughout Scripture, but a place that we see it specifically revealed is Luke chapter 3, verses 21 and 22, the, the baptism of Jesus. And we know this where Jesus is, is praying, coming up out of the water, and the heavens open up. We've got God the Father speaking down, saying, this is my Son with whom I'm well pleased. We've got the Spirit descending in bodily form on Jesus the Son. So we've got all three of them revealed there in perfect unity together. It's a beautiful picture, and we see this. But the Trinity is a difficult thing for us to understand. And that's why it is often the first thing a false view of God will manipulate or toss out. We like a religion that we can understand. If we're going to create one, we want one that we can control, that we can explain. And areas like the Trinity make us realize that there's somebody way beyond us, beyond our understanding, and therefore much greater than us. Um, and so I want to encourage you, don't reject the hard truths to understand. We need to hold to what Scripture says because if it's in there, it is truth, and we have to hold to that. So don't, don't avoid those things. You're going to see that come up again here in just a minute. The last area pertaining to God that I want to compare, I think it's the most important one. It's our view of Jesus. Now, Muslims do not reject the person of Jesus, but instead they fully embrace him as a prophet of Allah, who's sadly been misrepresented to the Christian world as God in flesh. They don't believe that Jesus ever claimed to be God, nor do they believe the accounts of the four Gospels. On a human level, Muhammad is taught to be actually far greater than Jesus, which I find uh, interesting. It's so fun to be teaching a series of Jesus is greater than and come to a religion that teaches the exact opposite of Jesus is less than. This is an interesting one because um, what you've seen over the last few weeks, and if you didn't get to listen to the other two, I would suggest that you go back and listen to them. They, they will help you understand some different things. But what you, what's common amongst false beliefs that include God is that they have to remove Jesus from his actual position. They immediately have to do that. He cannot be who he claims to be and still fit into this false view. It doesn't work that way. So uh, we see Jesus claiming to be who he says he is uh, in verses like John 10, 30, where he says, the Father and I are one. Now, I've heard people argue on this verse saying, well, that's not Jesus actually claiming to be God. He's saying he's in unity with God. Um, when you look in the context of it, though, it's very interesting what happens. He says this, and the Jews by him pick up rocks to kill him for blasphemy because he's claiming to be God. Okay, 
they knew what was going on in that moment. They understood, so I don't understand why we read it and go, no, there's no way that he was saying that. He was. And they reacted and responded knowing that's what he was saying. Another place we see later in the book of John, John 18, verses four through six, Jesus is being betrayed. He's in the garden of Gethsemane and, and this mob comes in led by Judas and this is what we see happen. Jesus fully realized all that was going to happen to him. So stepping forward to meet them, he said, who are you looking for? Jesus the Nazarene, they replied. I am he, Jesus said. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. As Jesus said, I am he, they all drew back and fell to the ground. I want you to take a moment and just picture what's going on here. Jesus, they come in and he says, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. He says, I am he. They are blown back and knocked down. Can you imagine me, one of those soldiers standing back up going, what in the world just happened? As they're getting up, what does Jesus say? He looks at him and he says, who are you looking for? And I'm like, oh, Jesus, whoa. Like, <laughs> he just, he just, it's this amazing moment. And now, I don't think Jesus was trying to like be, be overpowering or anything, but I think what he was doing was this. I'm going to reveal to you one more time who I am. I'm going to openly claim who I am. I'm going to use my name. And at the mention of my name, there is power and you will be falling to the ground before me because now you have no excuse as you stand up and still arrest me and take me to do what you're doing. I'm revealing myself, but it wasn't Jesus trying to get out of it. It says he realized what was going to happen to him, so he stepped forward. He willingly took what was coming. But I just think it is incredible to see this moment of Jesus saying, no, this is who I am, and a physical response of the people listening to it. He's claiming to be Jesus and to remove him. He's, he's claiming to be God and to remove him from his deity is also a very common thing in false belief systems because if Jesus is God, then what Muhammad said is not true. If Jesus is God, then uh, what we see in the Jehovah's Witness uh, teachings is untrue. Uh, not it, if he's part of the Godhead because here's what you see. We look at verses like John 1.1. 1, 1. It says, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God, right? That's what we read. That's what we see. Their Bible would say this. In the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was a God. They put in one letter and it changes the whole book. The whole thing's different because of one letter. You look at uh, the teachings of Joseph Smith with the Mormons and he would say Jesus is the God of this world, but you can also become a God of your own world. You see, we immediately have to remove Jesus from his position in order to have these false views. But to see what Jesus said himself makes it impossible to see him as just a prophet, a teacher, or a good man. It can't be that. Because Jesus didn't claim to be those things. C.S. Lewis responded to this and came up with what we call the Lewis trilemma, which is the idea that Jesus, with what he claimed to be, he either had to be a lunatic, a liar, or the Lord. Some of you know this, you've heard this, and I love it, because it, you got to think about it this way. Jesus is claiming to be God. So either he thinks like he's absolutely insane and thinks that he is God and he's convincing enough that a bunch of people follow him or he's a liar and he's super good at it and can do all sorts of tricks to make people believe and it's the greatest hoax that has gone on in all of history or he is who he says he is. And that's what we have to see. You can't look and say he's something other than those because with what he claimed to be, those are your options. That's it. So you look at these things, and this is why Muslims would say, well, then your gospel messages, they have to be false. They have to be wrong. They have to be corrupted. Speaking of the gospel messages, we're going to look at the Bible now. We're flying through this. Trust me, we're almost there. Some of you are like, okay, come on, Ben. Here we go. We're almost there. Don't worry. Okay? Muslims only hold to a small portion of the Bible as the actual word of God, but even that part they would see as badly corrupted. 
okay? As we looked a couple weeks ago at Mormonism, we kind of talked about the validity and the accuracy rating using, um, using the methods of textual criticism to see whether or not the Bible is as accurate today to its manuscripts as other documents throughout history. What's interesting that you'll find is that the Bible has a 99.5% accuracy rating using these methods and basing it, looking at the 25,000 plus copies of manuscripts that we have of the New Testament from some dating within 30 to 150 years of the events that took place, which is unheard of in antiquity, to find manuscripts like that that close to those events. It's amazing to see this and see a 99.5% accuracy rating to what we have today. Some people don't like that 0.5%, and I get it, because you're like, wait a second, a lot of message can be changed in 0.5%. But here's what's amazing about it, is as you do a study on it to figure out what that is, most of it is a misspelling. That's what it is. It's like, well, in this manuscript, they spelled it this way, and this one, they spelled it completely wrong. It's okay, you know? Um, and so you find these things back and forth. Nothing changed the message. In fact, when they found a manuscript that did change the message, that was set aside because it didn't agree with most of the manuscripts. So you can trust it. We now have this uh, preservation of the New Testament Scripture and its alignment with the Old Testament in perfect harmony in the canonized Bible that we have today. Uh, and if you want to know the information on canonization of the scriptures, you should research it because it will only help you to, to trust what's going on and the validity of what it is that we hold. To a Muslim, though, they would see that and, and say the message must have been corrupted immediately to match the already corrupted or false statements of the Old Testament. Well, I look at verses like 2 Timothy three sixteen through 17 says, all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. And, and as a Christian, we have to hold to these things. It's too easy in our day and age to toss pieces of scripture we don't agree with and say, well, that's just hard to understand, hard to explain. So we're just gonna set that aside. All scripture is God-breathed. All scripture is profitable for, for doctrine, for teaching, for correcting, for rebuking, for training up in righteousness. We've gotta hold to scripture. We have to hold to these things and not toss it. The most difficult piece for me when comparing the Bible and the Quran is the authorship. The Bible, you may know, has somewhere around 40 authors that were used by the Holy Spirit and inspired by God to write over 1,500 years, and it holds together without contradiction, even though these writings were not lined up in a way that was, here's the book you write the next chapter. It wasn't Moses writing Genesis, knowing that John was finishing with Revelations later. It wasn't like that. They were not written to be compiled together, but they were written by the inspiration of God to be spread around and passed out that the history and the teachings and the doctrine would be shared in the way that God designed it to be and then was canonized together later. But the Quran has one author over 23 years who dictated individual pieces and then they were compiled after his death. Now, one author, it's not that one author cannot be speaking truth, but my issue is, is the Quran is full of contradictions. It's full of contradictions. Some of those contradictions are historical ones that would say uh, things where Muhammad says, well, this is how things happened, and you look back at things that he should have known how they happened, and they didn't. It wasn't him prophesying of what would happen and being false. It's him looking at things that were already going on or already had happened and speaking falsely about them. It makes no sense, but we're actually gonna look at some of the ones that are contradictions within itself, verses that contradict each other in major ways. Three times in the Quran, Muhammad claims to be the first Muslim. Then also in 16 other places, he claims that there were many others who were Muslim before him, including everybody who's ever been born. 
which is real confusing to me. If he's the first Muslim and then every single Jew who's been born as a Muslim that fell away and every prophet before him was a Muslim and every person was a Muslim that fell away. It doesn't make sense to be the first if you're not the first. Another one, chapter or surah 355 and 262, we see Christians or those who follow Jesus as being labeled as above those who disbelieve and even it being declared that Christians will not mourn or grieve on the day of judgment. That's what it says that Christians will not be facing judgment, that they are actually better than those who do not believe at all or in anything. But then in chapter 98, verse 6, Allah declares that Christians are the worst of all creatures and abide in hell. It's a very big flip all of the sudden. Many verses in the Quran teach that Allah's words can be changed by no one, but then it also says that the Jews changed the scriptures. Um, Allah actually says in multiple places, chapter 2, verse 106 and 16, 101, that he needed to change his own words at times. Um, it literally says, uh, Allah will add and change things to correct false verses from before. Um, and then chapter 22, 52 even states that Satan himself has added false things to the message, but that is why Allah corrects it. This is where I have a major problem with this one. Because we start this religion with a man who believes a demon is coming after him, and he himself writes that Satan himself is adding to this message. And I don't understand why we have such a following behind it, except then when I was reading through verses from the Quran, I almost did this, and, and I'm glad I didn't, but I almost did. I almost posted one just to see how many people went, wait, where is that in the Bible? Because it sounds identical. And that's how Satan works. He's a schemer. He doesn't do blatant evil things. He does things that are just a degree off because that's all it takes. And so as you read through it, you'd be like, man, it sounds just like the Bible. Sure, there's some different teachings and things, but man, the wording of it is identical to what I would read. You'd feel very familiar with it. And that's what makes it such a, an easy thing to believe and fall into. But the list of contradictions, it's a mile long. And, and to each one, there's a rebuttal. But even those rebuttals often come with this statement of, well, you just don't understand because you're not a believer, you're not a follower, you're not a Muslim. Now, to that point, we as Christians do that too often. We, we have this attitude where people come and say, but I don't understand this in the Bible. And it's like, well, if you just knew Jesus, you'd get it. That is not okay. Why is it okay for us to say that and nobody else? It's not right. It doesn't work that way. And here's the reason why we struggle with that is because we don't like hard truths. Again, we're back to that. But when working with youth and college, it's the hard truths that I have to face in order to reach them, to teach them, because those are the ones they're wrestling with. They're not wrestling with the simple ones. They're wrestling with these difficult verses that don't match what their culture is telling them, and we have to face it. We have to talk about it, but here is the problem. The average Christian today cannot explain basic biblical truths because Christianity today consists of this. I show up at church. I listen to somebody who speaks. If I like what they say, I come back the next week. If I don't like it, the music better have been good or else I'm not coming back at all. And I mean, that's Christianity today. And it's a problem because we cannot speak truth. We can't give a defense for the hope that is found in us. We can't do what it is that we're called to. And we need to know the word, study the word, and hold faithfully to the word if we're going to start reaching into the world that we're called to. If we're going to live out what our, our mission statement is here, we have to know the word and hold faithfully to it, even the hard parts. It's not a buffet where you choose what you want. It's all inspired and breathed out by God. So now we hit the last one. The afterlife, salvation, and their view on it and our view on it. Muslims believe in an afterlife where those faithful will be rewarded, but those who do not believe will be punished. This sounds strikingly similar to Christianity and what we teach, but there are some major 
differences. First, the Muslims believe that Adam and Eve were never with Allah, never with God, but instead in paradise. And paradise is a separate place from the presence of God. Um, and that God never would have walked in the garden with them or spent time with them. Um, and, and so you see this. It's a very separated kind of thing here. And they were not on earth at this point. But then we read in the Torah, Genesis 3.8. One of my favorite verses, not because of the context of what's going on, but because of something we'll talk about here in a minute. It says, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden, so they hid from the Lord God among the trees. I love this passage, not, like, again, not because of what's happening in the story, but because of this statement, God shows up in the cool of the day. Now, maybe you've noticed this outside right now, this time of year, it's super hot. My skin does not do well with it. This is one of the verses I would look and say, maybe God's a redhead because we don't last in this kind of heat. And so in the cool of the day, at, in the evening, as the sun starts going down, we like, Janae and I like to take our kids and we go out for a walk. We enjoy it because as a family, that's the only safe time for us to be outside. But we enjoy it. We, we spend this wonderful time with our kids just walking in the cool of the day. And here we see God showing up to walk with his kids in the cool of the day. A very personal relationship. A very, uh, it's an incredibly uh, intimate thing that's going on here, but Allah is a non-personal God. Allah is separated and does not come into contact. In fact, the only one, uh, according to Islam, who has ever been in the presence of Allah while still alive, they would say, is Muhammad, who was raised through multiple levels of heaven even to reach God because he's that far separated that it's seven layers in before you even get to see him. But see, that's so different than what we see here. We have a God who desires to come and walk with his children, not a God who says, well, oh well, I created you, obey me. See, this non-personal God is, is what you see in all of these false religions, is a God that's distant, that's far. It's very similar to the polytheistic God's of their, of their time of Mecca. Now, they also believe that when Adam and Eve sinned, and, but in their terms, they would say slipped or messed up, that they felt conviction and immediately asked Allah for forgiveness, and he forgave them uh, and cleansed them, declared them righteous, but moved them to earth, which was his original plan anyways. Muslims do not believe in original sin, nor do they believe that people are born sinful. It is not passed down. Their belief, as you're going to see uh, in a basic form, is that man is good. But we see something different in Scripture. Ecclesiastes 7.20 says, Not a single person on earth is always good and never sins. Okay, I, I look at that and the Muslims will say, Well, absolutely, not everybody is always good, but we, we are good in basics, like back to it. So then we go, and I'm going to jump to Romans chapter 3, where we see Paul uh, restating some things from Scripture, quoting Scripture from the prophets. And here's what it says As the Scriptures say, No one is righteous, not even one. No one is all truly wise. No one is seeking God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Well, that's pretty clear. There's nobody who's good, not one. Too many of us are in this boat as Christians where we're like, hey, but I'm good people. I mean, there's good people around me. My neighbors, they're good people. We're not. That's what you have to understand is there's not good people according to the Bible. They're not. And you're gonna see why that's important here in just a moment as we continue in this. But, but you gotta understand that the Muslims believe basically that man is good. The man is born good and can stay good or be good enough. They teach that obedience and good deeds are the answer to being rewarded in paradise, following Islam, following the five pillars of Islam. And one day on the day of judgment or the day of resurrection, God will stand there or Allah will stand there with a scale and weigh your good deeds versus your bad deeds. 
And in this, what's going to happen is if you have more good than bad, you're good to go. Now, some of the Shi'i Muslims add uh, self-beating or self-harm to this list of things that help you receive reward. This is not taught in the Quran, but what they're doing is they'll beat themselves with whips and chains, cut themselves with knives uh, in an effort to commemorate and join in the suffering of the one who they believe should have succeeded Muhammad, his nephew Ali. I'd love to talk with you more about that another time. Too much to get into at this point. But, but the thing is, they're beating themselves, bruising themselves, cutting themselves, hurting themselves for the sake of earning reward. And this is not all Muslims, just a, a small sect of the Muslims. Scripture teaches us a much different way of salvation. And I'm going to read this to you, and I want you to hear it clearly. Romans chapter 3, starting in verse 19. It says, Obviously the law applies to those to whom it was given. For its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to show that the entire world is guilty before God. For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are, but now God has shown us a way to be made right with him without keeping the requirements of the law. As was promised in the writings of Moses and the prophets long ago. We are made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ, and this is true for everyone who believes, no matter who we are. For everyone has sinned. We all fall short of God's glorious standard, yet God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty for our sins. For God presented Jesus as the sacrifice for sin. People are made right with God when they believe that Jesus sacrificed his life, shedding his blood. This sacrifice shows that God was being fair when he held back and did not punish those who sinned in times past, for he was looking ahead and including them in what he would do in the present time. God did this to demonstrate his righteousness, for he himself is fair and just, and he makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It is based on faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. After all, is God the God of the Jews only? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God, and he he makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. Well, then, if we emphasize faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfill the law. I love that 600 years before Islam is formed, we have the Apostle Paul writing out the answer to Islam, writing out this whole thing, explaining it is not by obedience, it is not by following, it is not by being one who can adhere to this, it is by realizing we are not good, we are never good enough, and following the law does nothing but point out how bad we are because we realize how much we fail. It's not about how good I can be, it's about the fact that Jesus was good enough for me, that he was the one who was good. It was his works that were enough, not my own. And so I do not have to do this work. I have to have faith that he and he alone can save me, that his sacrifice, his punishment on the cross, his his death there, his blood being poured out was enough to save me. And if you're sitting in here and realizing that you've been living a life where you are working and trying to earn something from God, trying to earn your way to God, thinking that you are a good enough person to make it to heaven, you have to understand scripture is clear. That doesn't happen. That's not how it works. It's not by being good. It's not by following these rules. It is simply by faith because we have a God who wants to walk with his children not a God who says, I want to make it hard, I want to make it difficult, not you've hurt me and earned your way back to me. We have a God who says, no, I want you, and I'm going to make it easy. I'm going to do all the work. 
And all you have to do is by faith believe that when Jesus died, it paid the punishment, the penalty, the debt that you owed to God for your sins. And then when God raised him from the dead, it was him declaring that payment as accepted and giving Jesus the authority to give you new life right now, right here. And all you have to do is in faith believe. It's a beautiful thing. It's an amazing thing. And today we're going to celebrate this. We're going to reflect as we close in communion. And I want you to think about this because if you're sitting here and you have not put your faith in Jesus, I'm going to ask you, don't just take communion to hold up appearances with the people around you because for you at that point, it's just kind of a nasty snack. It's not worth it. Okay. See, communion is is for people who have put their faith in Jesus and are commemorating, remembering, celebrating, and rejoicing in what he has done on our behalf. His blood shed, his body broken. But if you're sitting here and you're like, I've never put my faith in Jesus, then what I want you to do is take this time to just spend between you and God. If you're going, no, God, I'm ready for this. I'm ready to put my faith in Jesus. I invite you to do that in this time. If you have questions, look at the people around you. Maybe grab one of them that you know can talk to you about this or come and find me. I'll be standing out there waiting for you. Come and talk to me. I want to answer your questions, but don't just try to keep up appearances. Today is the day to respond. Today is the day to hear the gospel and to move based upon what God is doing because he and his spirit is the one that is drawing you in. That's what he does. He is the one who saves. It is an incredible thing, and I want to just invite you. Don't don't just try to keep up appearances, but for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus... It's an amazing moment that we get to have right now where we get to remember what he's done. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread and he broke it. He handed it to his disciples and he says, eat this and whenever you do, do this in remembrance of me. This is my body that is broken for you. My body broken, not yours. My body that was ripped, that was torn, that was hung on the cross so that yours didn't have to be. Then he took the cup And he poured it out and he gave it to his disciples and said, drink this. This is my blood poured out for you. My blood, not yours. My sacrifice in your place. Whenever you drink this, do this in remembrance of me. As we close today and we reflect on this, as we remember what God has done and hear this song that they're gonna be singing, which talks about it's Jesus, only Jesus. I want you to just rejoice in what he has done. Celebrate this time together with those around you. Take this moment to remember, and and if you're sitting here again, I'm just gonna say it one more time. If you're sitting here and you have not put your faith in Jesus, come and find me. I wanna talk to you. Grab somebody near you who can walk you through this and explain it to you, answer your questions, or just talk to God right now and do it. It's time. I wanna pray, and then we'll take communion together as we reflect. God, we thank you so much for today. We thank you for your word. And we thank you, God, that you've given us the opportunity to look into these other belief systems, God. And and I pray that you would raise up in us a heart to reach, God, to passionately go with the the purpose of seeing this 1.9 billion people that are bound for hell have an opportunity to hear the truth and respond. God, would you break our hearts as your heart is broken for them? God, would you, would you help us to start reflecting you and what you've called us to do in this? And God, give us boldness, opportunity, words. Help us to carry the message that you've called us, trusting that you are the one who saves. God, help us to do what we've, we've been called to do. God, as we remember what you've done on our behalf, help us to rejoice. Help us to, to focus and remember. And God, go and act because of what you've done. 
And God, if there's any in here who have not put their faith in Jesus, would you draw them to yourself as only you can do by your spirit? God, move. We praise you. We thank you for this time in your word and this time in remembrance of communion. In Jesus' name.